we are moving much more towards the role of preventive healthcare. And that doesn't have to happen in a hospital. It can happen in our urban spaces, in our neighborhoods, and in our homes. And all of them have the same theme that you can get care from the environment that you're in if it's well designed. Hey, this is Bon Koo. Welcome to another episode of Design Lab. On this show, we explore the question how might we design healthier lives? This week, our guest is Dr. Katie Pedito. Katie is an environmental psychologist and an assistant professor in the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Leadership at the U.S. Air Force Academy. She received her PhD in human behavior and design from Cornell University. Her research focuses on providing equitable health environments for adolescents and young adults, ranging from pediatric cancer facilities to college health centers. We talk about the psychology of indoor spaces, the function of healthcare spaces, and the relationship between nature and healthcare outcomes. You as a listener, you can support this show. It's so simple to do. Go to Apple Podcasts, give us five stars, leave us a comment, and follow us on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. I know it's been a month since we dropped our last episode. My producer, Rob Puglisi, and I, when we're not doing the show, we are running COVID mobile vaccination sites in the city of Philadelphia. But stay tuned. We're going to be dropping episodes more frequently. Here's my conversation with Katie Pedito. Dr. Katie Pedito, welcome to Design Lab. So glad you're here. So excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. You are an athlete, an avid runner. I heard you ran across the country in 49 days from San Francisco to Baltimore. Is that right? Yes. Yes, indeed. I, and that's kind of the impetus for all of the work that I've been doing recently, but I'll tell you a little bit about that. I was kind of hooked up with the Ullman Cancer Fund for Young Adults, now the Ullman Foundation, based out of Baltimore, Maryland. As a young adult myself, I had been going through the process of being evaluated for the breast cancer mutation. It had run in my family and in my teens, I actually did the genetic test for it. So I'd kind of been on my, been on my radar to look at some of these resources for young adults that might even be contemplating a potential cancer diagnosis. And for me, the genetic mutation was negative, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. But I had this brief moment of time where I had to wrestle with what if it's positive? What does that mean for me? How does that change my life as a young person? So in this connection with the Omen Foundation, I had decided to take a break from academia after my first year of my PhD. I had gone straight from my PhD uh, or straight from undergrad. Sorry. I had gone straight from undergrad to my PhD and I just wasn't sure what I wanted to do with it. And so I took a summer off and when I say I took a summer off, I mean, I ended up running across the country, <laughs> led a group of 26 kind of college age, grad student age individuals. We started in San Francisco and kind of ran almost relay style across okay. the U.S. And along the way, we visited a number of different cancer centers, interacted with a number of young people, uh, mostly teenagers, college students who were experiencing a cancer diagnosis. and this same theme kept occurring every time we met someone. We heard the same thing over and over. 
it's so good to see someone our age. Mm. And that pointed to a design discrepancy for me that clearly these people were being treated in a place that did not match with their expectations, with their developmental outcomes. And that, that signaled to me that we were doing something wrong. So after the run, which was a fantastic, I would never do it again. Highly recommend doing it once. How many miles I, did you run every day? Every day, it was an average of 10 to 15 miles. Gosh. So kind of depended on how far we had to get. When we were out West, sometimes it would be 16, 17 miles just in Nevada. Totally blank road, no cars. We were running on the highway. It was surreal. Unbelievable. I think the most I ever ran in my life was five miles. So I would never be able to do that. It's been a while since I've run that much. I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are an environmental psychologist. I think you are the first environmental psychologist to be on the show. What is an environmental psychologist? Awesome. So there's a lot of misconceptions about what environmental psychology is, and maybe I'll start there. Yeah. And hopefully that clears some things up. Like you don't say the mental health of trees, like you don't interview Correct. trees. Correct. Okay. But there are some environmental psychologists that, that do. So we look at the relationship of the environment on human outcomes, usually things like human health and well-being. Mm. On one hand, we could talk about the natural environment, the influence of trees on patterns of gun violence in cities, for mm. example. Mm. I study in particular the built environment. So all of the things around us in our occupied spaces that might influence our health and well-being. And in particular, I found myself interested in spaces for adolescents and also spaces that involve our health care. Amazing. And you study this at Cornell University, is that right? My PhD is from Cornell. They have this amazing interdisciplinary program between designers. So we've got industrial designers, practicing architects, psychologists like me. So I translate between traditional psychology and the design world. I'm mm. not an architect. I'm not a designer. I have very few drawing skills at all, but I do speak that language. So this is one of the reasons I was so excited to have you on the show to nerd about design, but we both share this common background of having no formal training in design. So I'm trained as a academic physician. I have normal, I have no formal training in design, but I geek out a lot with designers. I go to conferences like the American Institute of Architects and they ask me if I'm an architect, I'm like, no, I'm an emergency medicine physician. I get strange stares. So I was wondering, do, what do the architects and designers think about you as an environmental psychologist in their field and research? What's that like? On one hand, I empathize with this idea of feeling like an outsider and feeling like people don't totally get why you're in that space. Yeah. But I'm lucky especially because I work in healthcare and health design. And maybe you've experienced this too, that there are people who work, designers who work in healthcare really want to understand what's happening in their space. And so unlike the individuals who are maybe designing these world famous, highly lauded buildings, architects and designers that work in health design are really focused on the function of their spaces. Mm. And that's where I come in. And so 
I've been lucky to have these fantastic collaborations. And the more that I have an opportunity to speak with people in the design world, the better we develop a shared language between psychology and design. Was there any uh, pushback from people in your academic domain of environmental psychology going, "Mm, why are you, Katie, going into this healthcare design architecture world? For sure. And I think that's echoed by the fact that there aren't really any environmental psychology programs anywhere. Mm. (laughs) There's a handful in the U.S. um, and a handful in Canada and Europe, but a lot of them focus specifically on the natural environment, things like climate change and pro-sustainable behavior. It's still very odd to be looking at the function of spaces, the psychology of indoor space. So from that perspective, traditional psychology departments typically look at my work and say, this isn't psychology. And then architecture and design departments look at my work and say, well, this isn't really architecture or design either. So it's this very odd middle ground, especially trying to find an academic home. So you are this unicorn out there that is able to go in between both these disciplines. And I was curious to know what compelled you to do that? Were you, did you come from a family of designers or psychologists? Like, how do you, how did you make that leap? Oh, that's such a good question. I was always interested in health and health environments. My mom worked at Johns Hopkins for years and years. And so I saw the impact of world-class care on the types of people that were coming in and out of this hospital system. But I knew that being a clinician was not for me. That is not a route that I feel like would be particularly (laughs) successful. So I knew that somehow, some way I wanted to be involved in people's care. And then finally, throughout this exploration of topics like human factors and environmental psychology, I found that there was this non-clinical way (laughs) to be involved in the healthcare system without having to perform emergency medicine, for example. (laughs) I would not be good at that. You would not want me there. So did you go into grad school thinking about that, that you're like not going to dabble in the, that did you go into grad school thinking about working in the healthcare space after you graduated? I had in undergrad, I did a thesis on, I'm going to say this again, because I got to word it. In undergrad, I did a thesis on infusion pump keypad design. Ooh, so I was that's so really, cool. <laughs> I was really interested in this super small scale impact of design, something that you might refer to more traditionally as human factors. How do the numbers on a keypad influence a clinician's ability to input the right dosage, yeah. specifically the location of the decimal point? There is no standardized way to develop an infusion pump. And so I was fascinated by this idea. And that is what I kind of carried into grad school. Mm. I had this really micro scale interest in design. And then I ran across the country and I said, oh, 
there is this much bigger system that all of these things are happening in. And it involves things like human development mm. and social psychology. It's this gigantic, you know, macro system of everything that's happening in a healthcare space. So that was what really led me to architectural psychology, environmental psychology at a larger scale. Then you just started hanging out with architects during grad school. Is that right? My advisor, Mardell Shepley, is an architect and she's a doctor of architecture. And she kind of took me under her wing as her non-architecture student <laughs> and kind of led me through this new world and taught me the, the vocabulary I needed to know to at least sound somewhat credible. Um, and through that, I've connected with just amazing people that work in this. So your research is focused on this like relationship between human behavior, design and health. Tell us about your thesis that you it, it involved designing universal space for social needs, right? Yes, specifically for adolescents and young adults with cancer. So you can start to see this thread that's maybe pulled through my personal life that really influenced my academic life as well. I knew that I wanted to work with young people. And for anyone who's getting into the grad student world, working with adolescents and young adults is the best. They tell you everything that you want to know, some stuff that you never wanted to know <laughs> on top of it. I have a teenage daughter, so I definitely understand that. Exactly. It is a <laughs> great population to work with. So after returning from this run where I'd seen this design discrepancy, I was interested to see if anyone had done anything with it. Mm. And the answer was not really. Wow. <laughs> um, there were nine or 10 facilities in the US at least that were focused on providing cancer care for adolescents and young adults. But that was facilitated in different ways through the space. There is an amazing facility in Fort Worth, Texas, that has an entire unit dedicated to adolescent and young adult cancer what? care. What? So what does that look like? Wait, what's it's the center? So cool. Like, what's the name of the center? So it is the Fort Worth Adolescent and Young Adult Coalition based at Baylor All Saints Got in it. Fort Worth. Okay. And they have their entire floor and it's amazing. There are a handful of rooms. It's a small unit, but okay. a handful of rooms that open on to this shared space that has a number of different recreational opportunities. There's a kitchen. There's these opportunities for informal social interaction. You know, you don't have to go into the space and say, I'm going to sit here and wait for someone to talk to me. Wait, wait, there's a, there's a kitchen. So we're talking about an inpatient hospital that serves patients with cancer and they're admitted as inpatients and there, and there's a kitchen in there. There is. So for families who are interested in maybe staying for a little bit longer and the rooms facilitate that as well, there's this great family patient connection between the space and the rooms. Wow. And it serves as this hub for mm. people to come and interact without any expectations. And I thought that was just so successful, but that was the only one. Oh wow. And it and makes so much sense crazy. because if you go into any home, the kitchen is the common area. That's where people congregate. That's like the center of 
activity and conversation. So it makes so much sense of inserting that design element into hospitals. Absolutely. And when we look at the design of something like the Maggie centers that are more popular in the UK, I think there's a handful in Hong Kong, they use the kitchen as what they call the hearth, the heart of the center, Mm. because Charles Jenks, some of you might be familiar with him. He's an architectural writer. His wife, Maggie, was diagnosed with cancer. He wanted to create this psychosocial space Mm. for people like her. And the center of these facilities is the kitchen, the hearth. And it serves as both this wonderful informal space for families, but also this opportunity for support and information sharing and advice across different cultures, across different needs. And I just thought that was so cool. It was cool to see it implemented here in the U.S. too. I I love these Maggie centers. For those who aren't familiar with them, can you describe what these Maggie centers look like? Because I think they should represent some of the future of healthcare spaces. When we think of future of healthcare spaces, we think of like AI and a lot of digital interfaces. But if I'm a patient and I get a diagnosis of cancer, I want to end up at a Maggie center. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And Maggie centers typically don't provide medical care. They're this unique in-between for individuals who are receiving medical care at a local facility. Maybe you're somewhere like Johns Hopkins, right? And you don't want to stay in a room, but you can go to these Maggie centers to receive psychosocial care. It's Mm -hmm. filling in the gap between medical care and psychological care. They are really cool because the designs are varied, but typically they look like a house or somewhere that you would want to be. They're inviting. The first one was opened in Edinburgh in Scotland. And that one really looks like a house. I think it was an old lodge and that one's located on the campus of a hospital. So it really exemplifies this interplay between psychosocial care and medical care. But since then, there have been Maggie centers designed by Frank Gehry, Zaha Hadid, and those wow. look a little bit more traditional, as you might imagine, there are architectural styles. So, some of these architects that have yes. designed yes. Maggie But it's cool to see their interpretation of what a home might look like, something that doesn't look like an infirmary. And they don't. They look like spaces that you want to see, that you want to be in, even if you're not sick. The mark They're of beautiful. a really good space. Yeah. Like I want to, I want to stay in one of them. They're just Yeah. Amazing. Oh, absolutely. And I would, if I was ever in Scotland, I would absolutely go see it. So that's the mark of a really good space to me. So I want to, I want to continue on this thread about how do we create healthy I want to continue on this thread of how do we create uh, healing spaces in healthcare? Are there some principles and methods that you employ when thinking about this? Sure. So there's a number of different frameworks that come from across academia that individuals might use to think about creating healthy spaces. One in particular is this domain of evidence-based design. In medicine, we talk a lot about evidence-based medicine, Yeah, but we can also do that with facility design as well. We can use what we know about 
human psychology and human behavior to build buildings. And why mm. why don't we use this wealth of information? Bonnie, yeah, we spend most of our time in buildings. Yeah. yeah. Has anyone on your podcast before talked about Roger Ulrich's work? We haven't, and I'm a huge fan. Okay, cool. Then I'll, I'll nerd out about that for a second. Roger Ulrich in the 1980s did this amazing study that really put evidence-based design on the map. So he went to a hospital in Philadelphia or in Pennsylvania and he right outside Philly, right, right near yeah, your neck right of the there. woods. Yeah. And he wanted to see if there was this really simple relationship between nature and healthcare outcomes in this particular hospital. So he designed this really elegant, simple study where individuals who are recovering from a cholecystectomy, a gallbladder removal, pretty routine surgery, typically not a ton of complications. We have a good idea of when patients should be in and out for that. And he used a psychology research method that we call matching. So you can't randomly assign people to have a gallbladder surgery. You can't pe pick people off the street and say, hey, today you're getting a gallbladder surgery. Congratulations. Even if you pay them a lot of money. Even you if you pay them there's, a lot There's some of ethical money. issues going yes. on there. So we have to get around that. And Roger Ulrich did this really creative matching technique where he said, okay, you two people who are coming in for a gallbladder surgery, you're pretty much the same age. You don't really have any pre-existing conditions. You weigh about the same amount. You guys are going to go in. One of you is going to get a room with a view of the garden, the trees outside of this hospital. And one of you, your twin for the study, right, is going to get a view of a brick wall. You're going to be treated on the exact same unit. You're going to have the exact same staff. So for all intents and purposes, nothing is going to be different about you except the view from your window. And that ends up being the name of the study, View Through a Window. And it's published in one of the top tier academic journals because what he finds is so compelling. The view through a window ends up having a statistically significant effect on recovery outcomes. So length of stay in the hospital was substantially reduced for individuals who saw the trees in the garden, and they requested less pain medication as well. And that's crazy because it had absolutely nothing to do with the clinical care they were receiving. They all received the same clinical care. So that really put evidence-based design on the map. And since then, we've continued to look at things like trees and gardens, but we also start to look at things like the influence of private versus shared rooms or centralized versus decentralized nursing stations, things that we can control in the architectural space. So it ends up being the built environment is actually part of the treatment plan. Yes. It's, it's as essential as the medications or the procedures, but the environment around you should be thought of just as important as the medication treatment a patient receives. I'm going to nerd out about that exact point with some evidence from my dissertation as well. In looking at adolescent cancer care facility in a survey of a hundred plus young people throughout the United States being treated at all sorts of different facilities for all sorts of different cancers. So really varied population. What I found 
was that when looking at health-related quality of life, that's a really specific measure, but it's one that hospitals care about. They want your quality of life to be good. They don't just want to heal your disease. And I was really interested in what else constitutes health-related quality of life? Because a big portion of it is health, how you feel. If you don't feel well, your quality of life is worse. Yeah. And I was curious if there was any possibility that the environment could influence health-related quality of life in a meaningful way without including anything clinical. And it turns out that when you use certain methods to measure the adequacy of the environment. So how well a patient feels like their needs have been met. It actually influences health related quality of life in a such a statistically significant way that we might actually see that number in a successful clinical trial for a new medication. Whoa. And I remember checking and rechecking it in my statistical package and being like, no, (laughs) no way. That's not, that can't possibly be true. And then it brought me back to this original thought that I had when I was a lot younger, that there has to be some way that non-clinical people can make a difference in care. And here it was in all of these, you know, beautiful numbers. And that was the most exciting moment of my entire career because it, it proved something. Yeah. The design has a really important role to play. 1000%. And you've done some pretty cool projects around design in healthcare. Can you speak about some of them? And, you know, some of them in my research was, you know, the example of how we can reduce the clinical load of practitioners in ICUs and then how using some of these design methods like prototyping to create uh, better spaces in healthcare? Sure. I'll tell you about one in particular that I really enjoyed being part of because the methods were awesome. The population was fantastic. And I think our findings were really meaningful. I was involved two years ago with a study of VA centers, Veterans Affairs facilities, two of them in the New York City kind of tri-state area. And we were interested in seeing what veterans actually wanted in an acute care facility. So if you're being treated for acute, intense psychological distress as a veteran, is it possible that your needs are different than the average acute care population? Hmm. So that was our hypothesis, that there was something unique about this population that might require slightly different approaches in the design of this space. So we conducted a series of what we called listening sessions that were basically focus groups, both with patients and their families and also with staff. So individuals who were experienced working with this population and in their space. And when we talk about the design of mental and behavioral health care, it's this really important balance between safety and comfort, both patient safety, but also staff safety. We, I could get into a tangent about how the U.S. does this very differently than Scandinavian countries, yes. for example. Oh, but, I, let's go down that tangent later. Yeah. Yes, for sure. But given that we're operating in the constraints of the U.S. behavioral health system, <laughs> we need to really prioritize safety 
in a way that sometimes affects our ability to design a compassionate space. Mm. So this is where the cool methods come in because we teamed up with an architecture firm, HDR, and they had presented a cardboard mock-up of a patient room. It was full scale. You could walk through it. You could kind of see how things related to each other. You could see the relationship of the bed to the window, for example, in the bathroom. And they ended up winning an award. So we got to pursue this project. And from the cardboard mock-up, we got some meaningful feedback. Then from the cardboard mock-up, we move into renderings and these more high fidelity photos, but then also to a prototype of a patient room in the unit itself. Wow. So it was a, it was still a mock-up. We hadn't completely redesigned the unit and that saved us a lot of money in the end, because when you design one room, it was pretty high fidelity, but some of the fixtures were missing. The TV wasn't there. When you design one room to get patient feedback, you don't have to reinvent the wheel if you've designed an entire unit already. And we found some really interesting themes, especially surrounding the role of privacy. Hmm. We often try to figure out ways to provide privacy in acute mental health care. It's really challenging because we need to pr protect the safety of the patient as well. And we found that that might actually be different for veterans populations who had this emphasis on what one participant called battle buddies, that it might actually be really beneficial to have these kind of peer support options in an acute behavioral health facility, especially because of the way that they'd been trained. And that was really cool because that's not something that you would typically hear from someone in acute mental health care. So I loved that study. I loved that we were able to see the progression of this room. And at each iteration, it took into account feedback from people who were actually going to be there instead of us just assuming what they could possibly want. That was only possible too, because you engage with the end users or the experts of those spaces, the people that who are actually going to use those spaces from the onset. And a lot of times as researchers, we don't include those voices. So that was amazing. We operate with a lot of assumptions about what we think people want. And on one hand, that's great because everyone has had some experience with a bad healthcare facility. All of us can relate to this idea that we wish something had been different in our space. But when we talk about really specific populations like veterans, adolescents with cancer, college health students, there are specific needs that are very different than mine or yours that we can't make assumptions about. And I have a quick anecdote about one that really stood out to me, this assumption. If you ever go into a cancer care facility, and they have a room or a unit that's built for teenagers. Sometimes they'll call it teen rooms, adolescent and young adult room. Almost always there is a ping pong table or a foosball table, some kind of recreational thing. And it's, it's the focal point of the space. And that's awesome. If you are maybe the sibling 
of a patient. But as soon as you go in and observe what's happening around these ping pong tables or foosball tables, one of them was air hockey, you realize that on an inpatient unit, most individuals with cancer have an IV pole and not only aren't particularly mobile, but really cannot possibly be playing a meaningful game of air hockey. And it's funny, but it's also this just kind of sad example of our assumptions and our biases. We assume that teenagers must want to play air hockey, but not these teenagers. They need something entirely different and we haven't asked them yet. I love that example. And you alluded to before about how we do things differently in the U.S. than in other countries. Can you speak upon the Scandinavia example? I wish that I had three hours to get into the policy implications of this and and why these things happen. But very practically, they've changed the way that we design facilities. If you look at mental health care facilities in the U.S. compared to somewhere like Sweden, it's entirely different. And uh, you said earlier that if you ever were treated for cancer, you'd want it to be at a Maggie Center. I would want to be treated in Sweden (laughs) if I needed any type of mental health care, because these facilities, similar to the Maggie Centers, look like homes. Mm. They look like places that you would seek healing rather than these institutions that we've really built in the United States in the past, which look more like prison. Sometimes some of these mental health facilities. Absolutely. Bond. Has anyone talked about Thomas Kirkbride? No. The oh, Kirk, okay. The, this is my Kirk, other, this is my other like drunk history. Kirk, um, Kirkbride centers. Yes. There's one right around here in Philly. There is. Yeah. The super <laughs> famous one in Pennsylvania. Yes. Tell me about that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This is the other one that my husband is like, yeah. you need to calm down when you tell these tell stories. Tell me about it. Okay. So Thomas Kirkbride is a great example of, you know, we're talking about this theme of making assumptions about what might work, especially with a population that you might not necessarily be part of, but it comes from a good place. We come at it with the best intentions. And Thomas Kirkbride is a great example of this. So this came at a time in U.S. history where women like Dorothea Dix had really been raising the alarm about the conditions for individuals who are institutionalized with mental health care concerns. And we were starting to look at this. We're starting to finally get an idea that maybe institutionalization isn't quite the right way to treat these illnesses. Mm-hmm. We're starting to even apply this disease mentality to mental health. And so Thomas Kirkbride is, he's not an architect, which is a very important thing to note. Thomas Kirkbride is a physician. He's also really an advocate for better mental health care and healthcare reform, which is great. Except he decides to kind of insert himself into architecture without a ton of formal training, but also without this framework maybe of evidence-based design. <laughs> and he constructs what we call now as the Kirkbride Plan. It is a pretty infamous style of architecture. 
There are Kirkbride plan hospitals in all most major cities in the U.S., especially on the East Coast. If you're in Philadelphia, there's one right down the road that you yep. can take a look at. There's a handful in Boston. A lot of them are on the register of historic places because they became so significant and not for a great reason. On the outside, they looked like they might be successful. He had really thought about some of these elements we learned from Florence Nightingale, that views of natural light were really important and that airflow was really important. And he designed these bat wing plans. So you'd enter the hospital through a main door and then you would be assigned to a room on either side of the wings. I encourage you to look at a picture of what this looks like because once you see it, they are iconic and yeah. you'll notice them. And those worked really well for providing natural light and natural ventilation because every room had some airflow and they had some natural lighting. And he paid attention to the gardens and really tried to create this compassionate architecture that would allow individuals to be outside and experience it. And it just didn't totally work, <laughs> partly because we were still not totally there in terms of mental health care policy and staffing and procedures. Mm -hmm. But there was also an important role of the space because in the farthest wings of the Kirkbride plan, the farthest spaces from this kind of central atrium, pretty horrible things happened. Mm -hmm. You could get away with a lot of horrible things on the staff end and patients really were not recovering. There's a number mm -hmm. of horror movies that really kind of focus on what happened specifically in the Kirkbride plans, session nine is one that comes to mind. And so within 10, 20 years, they were completely defunct. And many of these buildings are in ruins or they're in decay. The ones that are suitable are on the register for historic places. Some of them have been restored into apartment buildings. But it is. I would never want to live in one of those apartment buildings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm all for adaptive reuse. I'm not totally sure if I would be signing up for a lease in one of those places. Now, is it because of the physical distance from these rooms at the end of the corridors from the main hub of where the staff were that those people had worse outcomes? You've got it. Yeah. So there wasn't a consideration for this whole system of understaffing over occupation and where we might place staff to actually optimize outcomes. Additionally, there was the interaction of the most acute patients typically being placed in the farthest ends of the wings where maybe staff observation was the most important and it was the least provided. Interesting. I, I want to end with this question of how might we design healthier lives? And can you share an example of that, whether it's in the U.S. or a different country? I think as, a, as an international society, and maybe the U.S. is a little bit behind on this, you can make that argument, we are moving much more towards the role of preventive health care. And that doesn't have to happen in a hospital. It can happen in our 
urban spaces, in our neighborhoods, and in our homes. And all of them have the same theme that you can get care from the environment that you're in if it's well-designed. We see this in cities where cities with a higher percentage of trees that you can see on a satellite actually have better outcomes, even in terms of things like gun violence. Mm. And then we can see it at the hospital level. We talked about the view through a window and the influence of green space there, but you can also see it in your home too. Indoor plants increase occupant satisfaction, even if they don't actually purify the air quality. So that's just one example using green space, but you see it through all of these scales of your life. And it has nothing to do with medicine, really. It just has to do with the placement of trees and plants. So I see that thread through everything from urban planning to workplace strategy to residential design. And I would encourage people to look at their own spaces, the spaces that they spend the most time in, and think about what elements are there that are healing for them. Do you have a window? Do you open it? (laughs) Are you taking care of your plants? Because I am not. (laughs) And how are you cultivating healing in your own spaces? You don't have to be in a hospital to be healing. I love that. And I think we've all been thinking a lot more about this since we've been indoors so much during the pandemic. And I know for me personally, I've been trying to access green spaces a lot more during the pandemic. And I'm, I hope to continue that sort of change of my lifestyle as we're nearing the end of this pandemic. Absolutely. And even though at the beginning of this podcast, I said, I'm an environmental psychologist, but I don't do green space. I am a huge advocate for green (laughs) space and the mental and behavioral health benefits of green space are unending. So if you're out there, get outside, even 10 minutes is enough to restore your cognitive powers and reset your heart rate a little bit. Katie Pedito, joy to talk with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bon. It has been fantastic. You can find Katie Pedito on Instagram and Twitter. She is at P-R-O-F-P-E-D-I-T-T-O. And check out her website, K-A-T-I-P-E-D-I-T-T-O.com. Reach out to me by Twitter, Instagram, or email. I can be found at B-O-N-K-U on Twitter, at D-R-B-O-N-K-U on Instagram, or email bon at designlabpod.com. Rob Puglisi produced this episode. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. We will see you next week.